passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's good to have you this morning. If you're a new person with us, you have come in a very good time. We have just started the Gospel of Mark. So this is a great place to jump into the regular life and rhythm of Crosswinds. Last week, we studied the first eight verses in this gospel. Now, the very first verse of the gospel of Mark gives us really the theme of this gospel. Mark writes, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. We learned last week that these words are are very packed with meaning. I want to just remind you of one of them in particular. The word gospel is very laden with meaning. We know, if you've been around the church for a while, that the word gospel means good news. But for most of us, we, don't, we think of good, good news in a very simple way. You know, like mom is serving pizza tonight. That's good news. But this word gospel in the first century means good news of a particular kind. It means that there is a new king who is coming, a king who will bring salvation, peace, and happiness to his people. So when Mark says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, instantly people recognize that this is the story of a coming king, a king who is going to bring peace and happiness and goodness to his people. And this king is not like other kings, Mark says, but this king is the very son of God. That's the theme of this book introducing us to Jesus as the king. Now, we learned last week that in the ancient world, every legitimate king always had a forerunner. That's what they did. Whenever they were coming to a town, they didn't just show up. Somebody went ahead of them. Somebody literally smoothed and prepared the roads. Somebody talked to the people, so they were prepared to receive the king. And in the Gospel of Mark who is trying to show us that Jesus is the ultimate king, the first thing that happens is Mark says, let me tell you about the king's forerunner. His name was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, (laughs) he wasn't repairing broken roads. What he was doing was breaking up hard hearts. Remember that? Calling people to confess their sin, calling people to repent of their sin. And then he said, And look forward, look after me is coming, one who is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He was pointing people to Jesus. He was preparing people for Jesus. Now this morning as we pick up in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that Mark is continuing on this theme about Jesus being the king. We're going to look at two small vignettes in this gospel, which is going to teach us uh, about the king's coronation, which is his baptism, and then the king's vindication, which is really his temptation in the wilderness. Now, we'll unpack that for you in a few minutes as we get into our study. What I'd like us to do, though, is read the text we're going to study. So take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 9, and then please stand And just follow along in your text as I read God's word. Reading from Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. In those days, 
Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. So let's start in the first uh, half of this, which is Jesus' baptism. And what we need to understand, I put it down in your outlines here, Jesus was crowned king at his baptism. And it starts with verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is taking place around the year A.D. 26. As best we can tell, John the Baptist has been doing his baptizing ministry uh, for about six months at this point. And John will continue to do his baptizing ministry for about a total of another six months after this. According to Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus is approximately 30 years old when this takes place. And one day, while John is calling people to confess their sin, repent of their sin, and be baptized, in the baptismal line shows up Jesus. Now, what's interesting is at first, we learn that John the Baptist didn't recognize him. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 33, talking about this account from another gospel. I myself did not know him, he said. And the word know here literally means to recognize with someone's eyes. So at this point, we know that John the Baptist either had never seen Jesus, which I don't think is actually the case, or it had been a really long time since he had seen Jesus. And at first, he didn't recognize him. But what we see in the story is something triggers it for John. Somehow they make this connection. John says, wait a minute, you're, you're Jesus. And instantly, all that his mother Elizabeth has told him about the Messiah comes flooding back to mind. Remember from the Gospel of Luke, we know that Mary, which is Jesus' mother, and Elizabeth, which is John the Baptist's mother, they're actually relatives. And while Mary was pregnant with Jesus, uh, she had run to see Elizabeth while she was pregnant with John. So they sort of swapped stories. And I'm sure Elizabeth told her son, John the Baptist, uh, about Jesus' miraculous conception. And told her son about Jesus being the very Messiah, uh, the one who is the Son of God. And so what happened is John the Baptist is like, wait a minute. I'm calling people to confess their sin, repent of their sin, and be baptized. Jesus, you're not somebody who needs to be baptized. You don't have any sin to confess. You don't have anything to re repent of. Yet Jesus here is insisting on being baptized. And that's a good 
question. Let's let me look at this. Let's look at the argument, by the way, that John the Baptist and Jesus get in. It's, in. it's found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In other words, I shouldn't be baptizing you. By the way, the word prevented is in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means a continual thing. So it's just not a one-time exchange. This was a continual argument that took place for a while between them, where Jesus is insisting on being baptized, and John the Baptist is saying, absolutely no way, you don't need it. Now the question comes, why would John the Baptist insist on being baptized? I wonder that. Or excuse me, I was backwards there. Why would Jesus insist on being baptized? I would wonder that, wouldn't you? I think there are two answers. The the first one I I find in Matthew 3.15, and it's this. Jesus wanted to be baptized because submitting to John the Baptist's baptism demonstrated he was living a life that is right before God. Matthew 3.15 says this, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, that is a cryptic answer. I understand that. But the nugget we need to understand comes at the last part of the verse. Let me be baptized. It will fulfill all righteousness. Like it is the right thing for me to do. Why would it be the right thing? Well, Jesus has no sin to confess. He has nothing to repent of, but God's message to his people through John the Baptist is come into the wilderness, confess of your your sin, repent of your sin, and be baptized. Jesus cannot do the first two, but he can do the last one. He can be baptized. It would be the right thing for him to do. Now, let me explain to you a little more about why he would want to do this. Jesus wanted to be baptized so he could fully identify with the sinners he came to save. Jesus came to completely identify with us as sinners, and then he came to die on the cross in our place for our sin. Part of Jesus identifying fully with us is submitting to a baptism of repentance that was designed for us. Because he went through everything we need to go through to completely identify with us as sinners, even though he wasn't a sinner. Now let's continue in our text. Let's pick up in verses 10 and 11. And when he had come up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You're my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus' baptism here, I want you to understand in the flow of Mark's argument, is actually his kingly coronation ceremony. It's when he is crowned as king. And he is crowned as king, not from another earthly monarch, but he's crowned and recognized as king by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of significance that is going on here that when we first read it, it doesn't connect with us, but when we study it, it's really fascinating. For instance, 
the baptism of Jesus seems to echo the Genesis 2 creation story. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God the Father spoke and the creation came into being and it was actually Jesus who is the word who carried it out in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. But now we have Jesus and Jesus is going into his baptismal waters and what happens again? God the Father speaks. Jesus is going to begin to carry out an act of a completely new creation. And the Holy Spirit comes and hovers over him and rests on him when he is in the baptismal waters. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were active in the old creation in Genesis. And here we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit active beginning a new creation in the book of Mark. This is the beginning of Christ's ministry. By the way, this baptism of Jesus was a public event, not a private event. When we read this in Mark, we could be misled to, under, to think that this was something that just Jesus experienced when the, God the Father spoke and the Holy Spirit came down. But this was not a quiet little thing. It was a very public thing. Because when you turn to the Gospel of John, this is what we read. John the Baptist saying, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So when you see this baptism, you must understand it's a very noticeable, large-scale public event. It says, for instance, that it says the heavens were torn open. That word tear is the Greek word schizo, which is actually the same word used to describe the tearing of the temple veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple after the resurrection of Christ. By the way, so you know, the temple veil was a handbreadth thick. Now think of a piece of cloth that's as thick as your hand and then having that being torn apart and the amount of force that would take to do that and the tearing and the shredding that would take place. This is the idea that it wasn't like God the Father showed up in a soft, gentle, puffy, cotton ball cloud. This is God the Father tearing open the very fabric of the universe to speak and authenticate Jesus, and the Holy Spirit to show up and to descend upon Jesus in a very visible way at this moment. Incidentally, it's sort of a neat connection with this. If you go into the Old Testament, it's prophesied that someday, maybe God the Father would tear open the heavens and show up. It says Isaiah 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Guess what? It happened. The baptism of Jesus, that's exactly fulfilling Isaiah 64, verse 1. Now, how did this unfold? What we find is this. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit authentic authenticated Jesus as the Son of God visually. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we know the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in the creation story. Now, what is interesting is um, when you were in the first century, there's a number of people who didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Aramaic was one of the common languages of the day. So what you had is something called the, the Targums. The Targums were an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And people used that to be able to read their Old Testament when they couldn't remember their Hebrew quite right. Now, when the translators of the Targums came to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in the creation story, they struggled to be able to translate the Hebrew word hover into Aramaic in a way that really captured what the Hebrew word was saying. Because the Hebrew word literally means to flutter, like a bird would flutter gently, and they wanted to make sure that was understood. So what they did, they did is when they translated Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 in the Hebrew Targums, they added a little phrase at the end that's not in the original Hebrew. It's this, and the Spirit of God fluttered over the face of the waters like a dove. Now they added this little phrase, like a dove, not because they want you to think that the Holy Spirit looks like a dove, but it was to modify the idea of flutter with gentleness, because people understood what it was like to have a dove gently land on something. Now, take what we just learned about the Targums in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which was something that the Jews were well aware of in that day, and then come back and look at what it said in Mark right here. It talks about the Holy Spirit gently landing on Jesus like a dove. Like a dove is not meant to describe what the Holy Spirit looks like. It's meant to describe the gentleness with which he descended upon Jesus. The Jews who read that instantly connected this story in Mark with the Hebrew Targums. They knew that this is the gentleness of the Holy Spirit's descent on that. And I only point this out for you for this reason. Sometimes in the Christian church, we can sort of overreach a little bit on the idea of the Holy Spirit being a dove. You know, we have those Bible covers with doves on them, and we always picture the Holy Spirit like a dove, and we think that the third person of the Trinity is the bird God. You know, he doesn't look like a dove. It just says he's gentle as a dove. And I think that's very important for us to understand. Incidentally, the scriptures are very clear in the Old Testament that one of the defining qualities of Jesus Christ is that he would have the Holy Spirit resting on him in a very full, complete way. Look what it says, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's prophetically speaking about Jesus how the Holy Spirit would be in his life. Or Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, 
my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So, when we see the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism, he, is a, he lands on him gently like a dove, and the Holy Spirit is very, in a full way, upon Jesus Christ from that point forward. But God the Father, or the Holy Spirit sort of authenticates Jesus visually, God the Father authenticates Jesus audibly with these words. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Incidentally, in the Old Testament, prophets were called servants of God. Uh, they were called, um, I can't think of it, friends of God. But nobody was ever called a son of God. That was reserved for Jesus alone. Now, when we see this phrase, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, it just sort of rolls off our lips and there's no connection here. But for the Jews who read this, who were, Mark is trying to authenticate Jesus as the very son of God and the king, they would instantly recognize some of these phrases because they come from key passages in the Old Testament. Son of God, it comes from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a coronation psalm. It was sung when the kings in David's line were enthroned. This is the psalm they sung. And the first half of the psalm is sort of normal. But the second half is interesting because it all of a sudden shifts talking about a much greater king in the line of David who will one day come and be enthroned by God himself and who will be the ruler over the very earth. And this king's name is going to be the son of God. Now when Jesus says, this is my beloved son, instantly the Jews connect this with the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. The long-awaited son of God who is the rightful ruler, king over the earth. Let me just show you a little snippet from Psalm chapter 2. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. There it is. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. But that's only the first half of what God the Father says. The second half is in whom I am well pleased. That also connects with a key Old Testament text. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Let me read it to you. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And in this section of Isaiah, it's talking about the great servant of God who will bring forth justice to the nations, the one in whom God's soul delights. This is the same thing that God the Father just said on Jesus. 
Now, the, the interesting part is if you continue in the book of Isaiah, it continues to paint more of a picture of who is this servant of God. By the time you go 10 more chapters forward, Isaiah 52 and 53, we find that this servant of God is the one who will die in the people's place for the people's sin. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but go to Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 today and read them. It's called the Gospel of the Old Testament, is what many theologians call it, because it provides detailed, specific prophecy about how the servant of God will literally die on the cross for his people. So it's interesting. When God the Father says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, pleased, he's pulling these two texts together. This is my son who is the rightful ruler over the earth, but this is also my servant who will die in my, in my people's place for my people's sin. Isn't this neat how he's connecting all these things together? Now, the question becomes of us, what can we do with this? I always, when I study and prepare for Sunday, I say, okay, that's neat theology, but so what? And this is what came to mind as I was pondering on this and praying on this. From this point forward, you will see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is living life operating completely in his humanity. Is he fully God? And is he fully man? Yes. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that even though he has all of his heavenly glory and all of his heavenly power, he temporarily set aside the use of that to fully identify with us and to live a human life. But he doesn't live a human life strictly in his humanity. He depends and relies on the Holy Spirit completely and fully from this point forward. We're going to see in a moment he's going to face temptations in the wilderness, but he faces those temptations not using his godhood to insulate himself from them. He faces those temptations in his manhood, completely relying on the Holy Spirit as he goes through them. Jesus at this point gives us an example for our lives to follow. Because folks, as Jesus lived in his humanity, fully relying on the Holy Spirit, each one of us live out our humanity. But to live a life pleasing to God, we must also consistently and daily rely on the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to God. Let me give you some of these uh, just simple texts. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's us. We let the Holy Spirit guide and direct us, not just our fleshly desires. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
that we have a choice to live by our fleshly desires or live by the new desires and leading that the Holy Spirit has in our life and that we can actually put to death those fleshly desires through the Holy Spirit. The Bible also tells us that we are literally to be controlled by the Spirit as Christians on a daily basis. I like the way it says it. You know how people can become controlled by wine and alcohol in a bad way? The scriptures tell us, seek to be controlled by the Holy Spirit in a good way, where he dominates and controls your life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says this, And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So choose who you're going to fill yourself with. The alcoholic spirits or the Holy Spirit? One will lead to debauchery and sin. One will lead to life. Now, in your life groups today, if you look at your life group questions that are on the tail end of your outline, there's some life group questions where I really want you to dig into what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit and guided by the Holy Spirit. There's some key verses, if you study and read them there, that'll unpack that for you in your life groups today. And so I'm not going to get into that too much this morning, but I want to just whet your appetite for that tonight. Let me give you a little bit of what that means. You see, when we ask Jesus Christ to forgive our sins... Not only are we legally made right before God, so that when we die, we go home to be with him, but God promises to send his Holy Spirit into our hearts at that moment, and he stays there from that moment forward. In fact, you've noticed if you've been a Christian for a while, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit, he changes who you are from the inside out, doesn't he? Things that you desired before, now you see them as repulsive. Things that you didn't desire before that are righteous and good, you start to have an appetite for. You see, the Holy Spirit is making you a new person from the inside out, and you have to make a choice, and each one of us has to make a choice every day. Are we going to follow our old fleshly desires and following them tend to re-enslave us to sin? Or are we going to follow the new desires that the Holy Spirit places inside of us, which leads to righteousness, peace, and joy, and more intimacy with God? Now, today, I just want to encourage you, when you study this in your life groups, to go more deep, deeper into what does it mean to be led by the Spirit. I'm going to continue, in the interest of time, to move on to the last part of our text. Jesus was vindicated as king when he successfully faced Satan's temptations in the wilderness. Mark chapter one, or chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. In the ancient world, after a king was typically coronated and crowned king, one of the first things he had to do was go off and defeat some of the enemies of the king to demonstrate his rightful kingship. And you see the same thing going in Mark. We've had a forerunner preparing the way for the king. We've had the crowning of the king at his baptism. Now he goes on and he takes on the enemy of the king. Satan in the wilderness to identify 
to, uh, excuse me, identify and prove his credentials. He's not taking on the Romans. He's taking on Satan, sin, and death because those are the enemy that he came to destroy. Earlier, we saw that uh, Jesus' baptism sort of mirrors Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation story. Now that we come to the temptation of Jesus, all of a sudden you find that mirrors Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, doesn't it? The temptation of Jesus echoes the fall of Adam in Genesis 3. Adam, when he was tempted, he was in paradise. Adam, when he was tempted, he was in community with his wife, so he had relational support. Adam, when he was tempted, he was in the garden. He had a full stomach. He had all the food he could possibly want. Adam, when he was tempted, he had animals around him. And animals were friendly to him. Compare this to Jesus. Jesus was tested in a far more rigorous way. Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan, but he's not in a garden, is he? He's in a desert wilderness. He's going to be tempted by Satan. He doesn't have the support of community. He has isolation and loneliness in the desert. Instead of having a full stomach and the, the, the strength and energy of food, he fasts for 40 days and his body is hanging on the brink of life and death. Instead of having friendly animals that would be a support to him, He's surrounded by vicious animals that would seek to take his life from him. Instead of simply being commanded not to eat of one tree, Jesus knows that his father has commanded him to die on a tree. In this state of starvation, in this state of isolation and weakness, what he was assaulted with were the devil's most alluring temptations that he could ever conceive. Adam and Eve, they had to face one temptation. Just don't eat of this tree. The way this reads, and through the tense of the texts, we know that Jesus consistently faced temptation for 40 days straight. He was tempted. Now, when you go to Matthew and you go to Luke, you do find three specific temptations that Jesus was faced with, but that is not the exhaustive list of the temptations he was faced with. That's only the example list of the temptations he was faced with. Imagine that. Isolation, desert, loneliness, starvation, Fear of animals that would take your life around you. Trying to constantly say no to the most luscious temptations that Satan could assault you with. That's Jesus in this position. He's demonstrating that he is the rightful ruler who can actually take on, take on Satan. Conquer Satan. Because Satan is at his best and in this scene, Jesus is at his worst. And he still doesn't fall. Now, by the way, 
We know this from the temptations that were mentioned in Matthew and Luke. Satan's primary attack against Jesus was to tempt Jesus in his weakness to rely on his divinity instead of living in complete dependence on the Holy Spirit and his humanity. That's what he was going. Remember in the Matthew and Luke says he's hungry and so the devil tempts him to turn stones into bread. Use your divinity to make bread so you can eat because you can't handle it in your humanity. And I love how Jesus responds. He responds by always quoting a verse from Deuteronomy, which by the way, if you're learning something, it's always good to memorize scripture because then when you're tempted, you can quote it back to, to Satan when he tempts you. And one of the things Jesus says is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, it's enough for me to simply rely on the Holy Spirit and to obey my heavenly Father. And that's what he does. Now, where's the application in here? There's a number of them, but I just want to drill in on one particular one, and it is this. Realize sometime God, sometime God guides us into trials and temptation to prove that our faith is genuine. Right after Jesus is crowned as king, notice who drives him into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness to face the most vicious assaults of Satan that he would have until he reaches the cross. The Holy Spirit guided him into trials and temptations. Now, I know what we usually think. When life gets uncomfortable and things aren't easy, what do we like to say? Oh, I must be out of God's will. God wouldn't want me here. Sometimes God in his will and in his wisdom steers us into times of trials and times of temptation. The Holy Spirit was steering Jesus into the wilderness so that his identity as the Son of God would be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Did you ever realize that sometimes the Holy Spirit may steer us into trials and temptations so our identity as children of God would be shown to be true without a shadow of a doubt? Oftentimes, it's when we are going through hard times that our faith in God and our love and trust in Him is most clearly seen, isn't it? Peter talks about this. He says in 1 Peter 1.7, So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At times, God will steer us into times of trials and temptations so our faith has been tested and proved to be genuine. Now let me just speak to you heart to heart. When you've gone through hard times, all of a sudden you find yourself praying like never before, don't you? Calling out to God and asking his Holy Spirit to give you strength like never before. When you think you can't take another step forward, it seems like God is the one who continues to put one foot in front of another. And when you pass through that season, don't you end up giving 
even more praise and more honor and more glory to God because he is the one who carried you through? This is sort of what's going on here. Folks, expect that we're going to face times of trials and temptations, not to destroy our faith, but this is one of the ways that God proves our faith and demonstrates it is truly genuine. One other thing I want to point out to you is this. Sometimes God guides us into trials and temptations to improve our faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes God steers us into trials and temptations for spiritual maturity purposes. The truth is the largest steps of spiritual growth that have taken place in each one of our lives are not in the easy times. They're in the hard times, aren't they? To improve us. So, why does God steer us sometimes into trials and temptations like Jesus? To prove our faith and even to improve our faith. Let me just summarize up. What are the things we learn from this text? Well, number one, the coronation of Jesus at his baptism visibly demonstrated Jesus as the Son of God and the testing of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. When Satan was at his best and Jesus was at his worst, vindicated that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the flow that Mark is showing continually through this text. Jesus is indeed the King, the Son of God. He's been crowned and proved worthy. But there's some practical applications we picked up along the way. And they are these. To live a life pleasing to God in a world filled with temptation, we need to live every day relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did, don't we? And also this. There are seasons in life when God steers us into trials and temptations. He never does that to destroy our faith, but to prove and to improve our faith. We're going to close this morning with baptism. And before uh, the elements are passed, I want you to know, what I've done is I've put two questions on the board. And as the elements are passed, I want you to ponder these questions. Ask yourself, where are you at on these things? And if God convicts you, simply repent. Ask God's forgiveness and rededicate yourself anew to them. And here's the two questions I want you to ponder as the elements are being passed before we take together. Number one, am I trying to live in step with the Holy Spirit like Jesus? Or am I um, letting myself be led away by following my fleshly desires? Am I trying to live in step with the Spirit, or am I just living by my fleshly desires? And number two, do I see my trials and temptations as the way God wants me to because pr- God wants to prove and improve my faith? Or I, do I see my trials and temptations leading me away from God? The trials and temptations build you up like God wants or tear you down. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your coronation and your vindication. Thank you for being crowned the rightful king to rule the earth and to save us from our sins. And then, when you were at your worst, not submitting to Satan's temptations, 
and you proved and demonstrated that you are one capable of taking on Satan and destroying Satan. And even what you uh, went through in the wilderness, temptations, which are beyond anything we could even imagine. We know that what you faced in the Garden of Gethsemane, when we move from the beginning to the end of your ministry, and what you faced on the cross was beyond anything that we could even conceive of. Yet you did it all for us to die in our place for our sins, to completely forgive us for all we have done, and then to adopt us to be sons and daughters of God simply by placing our faith and trust in you. Now, Father, as the elements are passed, as we ponder this idea, uh, what are we relying on, the Holy Spirit or ourselves, and we ponder uh, what we're doing with our temptations and trials, letting them build us up or tear us down, I pray that you would convict us of sin, help us to repent of sin, and walk faithfully after you. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.